It's good to be here this morning. It is good to be worshiping together, to be worshiping through music, through stories, to spending a few moments to just inadequately thank those of you mothers and women and mother figures out there in our lives. So we thank you for that. And as I was thinking about mothers this week, I remembered back to my childhood and times when I would have my heart set on something where my all my mind and being would be focused on getting something, maybe a piece of candy or a new toy. Parents, I don't know how you bring your kids to the store. Because, man, my blessings to my parents for enduring. Because it just is like, it's like a magnet. And the stores know what they're doing, too. And, and there's the toy section. And you go down there. And there's all of these good things just at the right height. And you're looking, and it just, in that box, so pristine. You've seen it on the commercial where it actually comes to life. And you're like, maybe if I get this thing, it'll do it. And you're like... Mom, can I get this? And she's like, no. And you're like, but mom, please. It'll make me so happy. And we, we, and we have this thing. It's like, but mom, please help me. So mothers, on behalf of all of us children, I apologize for all the times that we have whined and asked for these things in such whiny manners. But that phrase, when applied in Scripture, but Jesus, is a powerful statement. Is a powerful statement of Jesus and the way that he moved in directions you did not assume. That when you thought he would zig, Jesus would zag. And when you saw these things... The uh, the expected happens. Let me say that again so I say it correctly. The unexpected happens with Jesus. Last week, we took some time to look at the story of Nicodemus a little bit and the, and the character in his night meeting with Jesus, which comes into that beautiful verse, John 3.16, that gets thrown about, often leaving off verse 17. For God did not send His Son to the world to condemn the world, but just when you think you would assume what's happening, when when you begin to understand what's going on with sin in the world, the predicament that the world's in, you would assume that God would be like, enough's enough, and I've come to point out each and every one of your wrongs. But Jesus. But that the world through him might be saved. Jesus does the unexpected to save. Always. Period. 
Jesus does the unexpected to save. And that's what we're going to spend some time this morning digging into, looking at through just a couple snapshots of Jesus' life, these times when Jesus did the unexpected. Maybe even a story where we think we know what's going on, but are missing the nuance of what Jesus is doing that goes against, that goes against what might be assumed. I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, a well-known story is found in John chapter 8. I will not spend any time going into the literary criticism on this portion of Scripture, but just note a lot of your Bibles will have lines or asterisks that say early manuscripts don't have this story in it. But that's okay. I believe that this story happened. And this is the story of that morning when Jesus is in the temple teaching the people and the leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes try to set Jesus up. Try to set Jesus up looking for a way to catch him in, a, in some sort of breaking of a law that they can then use as their, as their point to bring Jesus down. And this morning, they've set it up and they go grab this woman and bring her before Jesus and plop her in front of Jesus and the multitudes of, that he's teaching. Just imagine if somebody did that right now because that's essentially where Jesus was. Teaching, although Jesus always likes to sit down when he teaches. We've talked about that before with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus sat down to teach. But imagine these doors bursting open and a barely clothed woman being drugged in front of us, thrown down and being accused of this crime. That is the setting that is happening that these these men, that these leaders have devised. And in verse 6 is where we pick the story. They said, this they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. They were were saying, this woman's in adultery. This woman's been caught in adultery. What do we do? Moses says we should stone her. What do you say we do? And they're saying this to find something to, to trap Jesus, to accuse him. But then the Bible says, but Jesus. Jesus does the unexpected to save. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but as I was thinking about this, the idea of the unexpected, unforeseen third option that's out there. A lot of times in my life, it comes in my work with kids and whatnot. You think you've devised the foolproof plan. You tell them, okay, I do not want you to, and I can't think of a good example, but you tell them, okay, I don't want you to do something, or here are the two things that I want you to do. And somehow, they find the secret third option 
that does not get anywhere close to what you are trying to accomplish, but yet does not break any of the rules that you have stated. I don't know if you've experienced this in your life. Um, when the secret third option rises up and catches you unexpectedly. But the, I just imagine the frustration I have at those moments. The scribes and Pharisees, as they began to see Jesus choosing the secret third option, the unexpected option that Jesus was choosing in order to save. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. This is the Tim paraphrase because apparently I can't read the words on the page. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw that no one but the woman and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. The unexpected third option, because here is a moment when there is only two options present, it seems. Jesus cannot break the law of Moses because and say, you know what, it's okay, this one time we'll let it slide. He can't do that because the moment he does that, it, it reduces the law and they will get him on that. Jesus can't say, yes, I condemn her to death and she should be stoned. Throw the stone. Because the Romans had the right only the Romans had the right to pronounce the sentence of death. And so to do that would have been to break the law against the Romans. And so there is zero choices here. It is the perfect plot. But Jesus, in his love and mercy, seeing things, knowing this would happen before it happens, already knows how to deal with it in a way that is meant to bring salvation. The leaders hold on a second. My slides have gone awry. Was I on that slide before? Because I thought I was. Oh wow. That's unfortunate. Jesus chooses the unexpected third option. We've talked about that one already. Okay, very good. Now right now now we're there. The leaders coming to Jesus have come to condemn, to condemn a sinner worthy of condemnation. That is what the leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees have done. And they, they've, they've brought this woman 
who is worthy of condemnation, but they are not there to actually condemn the woman. They couldn't care any less about this woman. They're just using her for their purpose. What they've come to do is condemn the man who is sinless and not worthy of any condemnation. They are the exact opposite of what Jesus has done. Jesus could have come down here and come down to condemn because we all deserve condemnation. We all deserve to be told, you're doing it wrong. There's a fly. I don't have Tourette's or any issue like that. Um, They could have come down for any of those. Jesus could have come down for that. But Jesus comes down not to condemn the world, but to save the world. The Pharisees, the the leaders, the scribes, they have brought this woman in order to condemn the man who should be condemning them. In order to find the one, just one mark that they can latch on to so that they can take Jesus down. But Jesus doesn't condemn. Jesus doesn't embarrass Jesus choosing that option, that third secret option, bends down and begins to write in the dirt. The Bible doesn't say, but it seems that he probably was writing down the sins that these men held in secret. And I imagine as Jesus is bent over, his heart is just crying out saying, Please get the picture. Understand that as I write in the dirt that the salvation that I'm offering to the women, I'm offering to you and I will happily erase with just a breath all evidence of your sin. You see, it's interesting. The, this jumped out at me in reading this story through this week. The the idea that being convicted by their conscience. Conviction is not a bad thing. Conviction is a good thing. The woman there as this is happening at the end is convicted. But she is convicted by Jesus. The leaders are so focused that they are convicted by their conscience. And if we allow our conscience to be the judge of us, we will always, always lose that fight. When we understand, we're told as we see Jesus more and more clearly, as we see Jesus, as we understand him more, that we will be just disgusted at seeing how sinful that we truly are. But I hope you catch this. Being convicted by their conscience, they had a choice. And that choice was to either stand up in their own sinfulness or to fall at the feet of Jesus. The mercy offered to the woman was at the same time offered to the accusers. Do not think that as Jesus was writing in the stone, writing in the dirt, that he was not 
doing everything possible to, in this moment, reach out and convict the accusers to understand that I will wipe your sins away, to begin to understand that I will take this away. The mercy offered to the woman was the same as offered to the accusers. That same mercy offered to this woman in this story is offered to us today. The mercy of God is offered because he did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. But Jesus. The unexpected, the ways that Jesus would go about saying, I am here to work in your life, to save you. The unexpected. It needs to be understood that the way out of our sinful issues, the way out of our sinful problems, it may look like there's an A and B option, but Jesus provides that unexpected third option. And we have to follow that because we cannot work our way out of it or just dwell in it. We have to have that unexpected third option of Jesus leading us through and above it. And that is what Jesus has come to do. But Jesus, don't let what you think is going to happen, what you think should happen, control your thought process. Understand that there is a way, there is a, an option, but Jesus. The last few weeks following Easter, we've been lingering. Pastor Walt's been lingering. Um, I said, uh, as I was talking with him yesterday, I used a different word and he took it as an offense, which I can't remember exactly what it was, but I did, I do have to say, I kind of drew it out and I was like, you've been holding on, but no, we've been lingering, basking in kind of Easter. And I wanted my option. So we're going to continue to bask and linger in the cross as we look at another situation where Jesus was choosing an option that you you just can't imagine. So I invite you to think of the story of the cross and we're going to look at that, the story of the cross and kind of look at the seven last words of Jesus. Now, for those of you who no pastor talk may just have had a little lump come into your throat saying, we're just getting to the seven. No, 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 no. We'll whittle it down real quick. Don't worry. Um, but the seven last words of Jesus, um, see if I can remember them. Um, today, our father, forgive them to the soldiers, to the thief on the cross. Today, you will be with me in paradise. To his mom, you know, woman, here is your son. Son, here is, here is your mother. How many was that? Three? Um, let's see. What was the next one? I thirst. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, it is finished. Into my hands I commit your spirit. And I think I forgot one. What's that? Was that seven? Okay, I can't count. So my, my mind is good. I remembered, but I just can't count. All right, so that's that. But I want to look at this story where Jesus is on the cross. And I want to look at it in the context, context of the song that Jesus was singing on the cross. I had never 
really grasp this at all. But Jesus was singing a song on the cross. Now, do not get into your mind and try and think that I'm talking about it was a joyful experience, that it was filled with joy. Jesus was suffering. Jesus was in agony. But cutting through that agony and carrying him on was a song. A song that he would have been reciting. If you've ever been over to Israel or in a Jewish culture, when they start to do their prayers, they get this rhythm going and they they rock a little bit and they just have this rhythm and all of the stuff they do just kind of helps them work through these these sayings and is, is a song of sorts. And I'm here today to tell you that while Jesus was on the cross, he was singing a song. And I want to look at that. First, it starts off with the opening line, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, whenever, I, whenever I've read this before, I always look at this as not licensed really to be worried or to be angry, but I mean, kind of, right? We look at this and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We, we hear this, we hear this just despair. But most of you may know, some of you may know, that this, he was actually quoting scripture. Psalm 22. Now, if you have a Bible and want to kind of follow along, I invite you to turn to Psalm 22 and follow this because this was kind of amazing as, as I saw this pop out this week as I was looking at this story. Jesus says this opening line. Now, it's important to understand Whenever the New Testament references the Old Testament, we can't just look and say they were pulling out one little bit. We have to look and say we need to take in the context of what was surrounding the line quoted. And I'll take it even one step further. If you know me even just a little bit, especially those who work in the office here, it is a running joke, and I have a running dialogue with another friend of mine that there is a song for every occasion. I also believe that it should be sung. And I believe today I'm going to prove from the Bible, from Jesus himself, that I am right. So if you are not on my side, I love you, but you are wrong. (laughs) There is a song for every occasion, and Jesus proves that it should be sung. And we can't deny... What was happening? My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Tis so sweet. To trust in Jesus. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. I just need to say one or two words, and all of you now are in your mind humming or thinking of one of those songs. And in the office... I don't know what it might be, but in just general conversation, staff meeting, it doesn't matter. Somebody in there will say something and I will just burst out and I will just sing it. And I don't care that I'm interrupting the meeting. I don't care that it's maybe not called for. I don't care that it's a song I would even want to admit that I know. It has to be sung. Do not miss that this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, comes from 
the hymn book of the Hebrews. It is the opening line to a song that they all know. And so when Jesus utters these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every single person would have said line two and gotten on to verse three and four and would have worked through that song. They would have recognized it. You cannot look at this text and say, this is Jesus crying out in agony of being forsaken of the God withdrawing from him. Yes, that had happened, but Jesus was using this song in this rough moment of his life to draw strength, to not talk about the fact that God had forsaken him, because as we work through this, you will see, man, whoever put these chairs, you did a good job today because you guys would be in the spit zone. Just saying. Um, if, where was I? I got so distracted. They would have been singing this song. They would have been humming it. And you have to understand that this was happening. And man, I forgot what I was saying, but that's okay. We can move on. It's not God saying, yes, that's where I was. It's not the the despair of God that's crying out, my God, why have you left me? And it's not even, why God have you left me? It's my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice, Jesus in this most agonizing time is reciting is maybe through pained breaths trying to even carry a tune I don't know but is reciting to himself this psalm that starts off with this phrase of forsakenness but ends up being a victorious song in the end My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Psalm 22, verse 1. This really needs not a lot of explanation. It's the exact same verse. So that's step one. He starts the song. And don't get too caught up in the order of how I put these words because I believe that chronology in specific order is not a huge thing in the Bible a lot of times. And so it probably was, this started early but it just was then that it was mentioned. So here we see that Jesus starts the song. Now I've talked about how the people knew the song. This, okay, this text I've known about, but this next thing blew me away. And I was like, wait a minute. The people were singing the song right back at him, but for different reasons. Because if you follow along, so that was in verse, um, verse tw- tw- Psalm 22, verse 1. One of the next things that is said by the people to Jesus in trying to say, save yourself, he trusted in God, let him deliver him. These are the people mocking Jesus saying, well, you said you're the son of God. You say you trust God. Let him deliver him. Are you ready to be blown away? And if you knew this, awesome. Why didn't you tell it to me sooner? Um, Psalm 22, verse... Eight. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Is anybody questioning my um, exegesis right now? Okay. 
Are you with me? Are you seeing this? The people, when they are mocking Jesus, are using the very song that Jesus is using to encourage him as a way to mock him. Friends, don't just know the scripture. Know Jesus. We can use scripture just like the devil, just like these mockers, to throw jabs at people, to try and discourage people. But in the midst of this, in the midst of the song that people are singing, they're singing right back at him. But mockingly, they don't know Jesus. There's also some, not speculation, but a lot of people think and some scholars um, and if you want to know where I got this note, I got it from the Andrews Study Bible is where I found this little tidbit. But this psalm, Psalm 22, in Aramaic translations, was sung at the morning sacrifice. So are you tracking me? This whole but Jesus thing. This is unexpected, but Jesus is taking the unexpected path to say, wait a minute, there's salvation available. This is a morning sacrifice song that Jesus is singing. But the people are missing the point of Scripture. Please, let us not be a church. Let us not be a group of people that misses the points of Scripture that misses who scripture about. Jesus said, all scripture points to me, to him. Do not forget the subject of scripture is Jesus. All right, one of the next things Jesus said on the cross, he goes down and says, I thirst. If you're following Psalm 22, this one's not as verbatim, but it still is very close. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. If that doesn't sound like dry mouth in need of water, I don't know what does. You have brought me to the dust of death. Going through this song, Jesus is again saying, I thirst. My mouth, my tongue is stuck to the roof of my mouth. I can't, I'm thirsty. He is continuing to sing the song throughout the hours that he is on the cross. but Jesus in the unexpected. And the fourth one we want to look at, the fourth thing he said at the end, it is finished. John 19, verse 30. This is the end of Psalm 22. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. a people who will be born that he has done this. There's two things I want to point out about how this translates to it is finished. The first is to understand that the has he done this, that word there in Hebrew, done, that's translated done, can also is also translated as made or maker or those sorts of things. So it's like, it's done, I've made it, it's, it's done, it's complete, 
it's done, you know, these sorts of things. But if you just, if you think about that and have that context of the word, this text might be better read instead of, as Jesus saying it, it's like he's almost saying to a people that will be born that he has done this. He's saying to a people that is born that he has made. On the cross, Jesus is achieving a people who are reborn to new birth, recreated, they're made new. Jesus is saying that in this moment of it is finished, that it is victorious. And so Jesus, as he has sung this song on the cross, as he has spent time going through this, is declaring at the end that it is finished. It is complete. The song is complete. Jesus on the cross is making the church. The people are now gathered together and there is now a new people, a new Israel, a church that will go out. It is made, it is finished. Jesus continuing to sing the song. The second point I wanted to draw out from this about it is finished is also to note the time that Jesus was dying. The, the scripture is very specific in sums that it was the, the third hour or the ninth hour. It was this specific time of day when Jesus cried out, it is finished. It happens that it was at the time of the evening sacrifice. I imagine just down the street in the temple, the priest has done it, put on his robes. The priest is there with the lamb leading it to be slaughtered. He has the knife. He has the lamb. The lamb is laid down. The throat is exposed. The knife is raised. When Jesus cries out, it is finished. The picture here, we can't help but see Abraham and Isaac. The knife raised his son on the altar. At that point, Abraham, Abraham, stop. I have a lamb for you. And at this moment in the sacrifice, when the priest is getting ready to do the evening sacrifice, Jesus cries out, it is finished. Now, in Hebrew, that it is finished is just one word. Um, and that is kelah, okay? But this is a word that was uttered by the priest when the sacrificial lamb had been killed. They would say the word kelah. It is finished. Jesus, on the cross is crying out to the priest, to those who understand, who are singing the sacrificial song with him, who are mocking him. He's saying, don't you see? I am that lamb. And so in this moment, in this moment of persecution, of suffering, Jesus is doing the unexpected to save. Because he's trying to remind them, even in his suffering, he's using the, the popular songs of his day 
to communicate to them and say, do you not see how this psalm that you sing about the sacrifice is about me? Do you not see that I am here to save? And so on the cross, Jesus was doing everything he could to do the unexpected, to use this moment of shame and torture as a moment to say, please understand, I am the lamb. I am here to save you and not condemn you. Jesus singing that song on the cross. Jesus does the unexpected to save. Do you believe that today? Have you experienced that? And if you haven't, that's kind of an awesome place to be right now because you can experience for the first time Jesus doing something unexpected in your life. A sin, a memory, a something in your life that you just think can't go away, Jesus can remove. The Bible tells us that the wisdom of Jesus defies human understanding and makes the wisest look like fools. Do not think that you have to see the way out. Jesus has been through it and will take you out. Know that Jesus is here to offer you this through his unending, unrelenting, amazing grace. Jesus is here to do something unexpected in your life. So when you don't think there is that third option, remember, but Jesus. Jesus knows that way. And he is doing everything that he can to let us know about his love for us and to do it in a way that speaks to us, that can draw us to him. Let Jesus do the unexpected in your life. Jesus, do the unexpected in my life. Lord, we just thank you for doing the unexpected. God, may we live in the reality that you didn't come to condemn that you didn't come to point out that you came to draw us through your grace and mercy. Lord, whatever may be binding us, whatever may be holding us, may we see you working in our lives. And if there's something that is causing us to mock or to not be convicted to fall at your feet, but to still stand up in our sin. God, I pray that you would bring Jesus to us and you would break us and we would fall on him. So Lord, we thank you for, again, for your mercy. We thank you for that secret, that unexpected third option that you always choose when trying to save us. We thank you and ask these things in the saving name of Jesus. Amen.
Dear Jesus, thank you, thank you for dying on the cross for us, for doing the unexpected in our lives, the option we could not see. Thank you for attending this as we go through our lives. Thank you for being willing to put up with us through it all. We praise you and, and invite you anew to be our partner as we go through this life. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We like to call this halftime because we're just half finished with our service today. Um, We will have snacks in the back, and then after snacks, we have Bible study classes.